listening to Cleaning the Case, a broadcast devoted to peeling back the culture and traditions associated with today's Christian faith through a widow, bride, and marriage theological perspective of Scripture. Welcome. My name is Andy Mendonza, and I will be your host. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is part four of the series, The Church as Last Eve, Proving Jesus Came to Redeem a Bride. Uh, this may be the easiest correlation to make between the creation of of Eve through Adam. Uh, that description, these passages we've been going through, sometimes word by word. And uh, the New Testament uh, with Jesus, uh, correlating passages and uh, uh, events and actions uh, involving Jesus in order to prove that um, Jesus came to redeem a bride. Um, of course, that the bride I'm talking about is the church, uh, but the church is the bride, uh, and Jesus is not only uh, Savior, uh, the promised Messiah, um, but he's, he's our bridegroom, our husband. And I think maybe this, this particular passage uh, in Genesis, uh, verse 24, uh, may speak more to that than any of the other uh, verses that we have covered so far, especially uh, in relationship to our own uh, earthly marriages. We tend to look at this passage in, in Genesis uh, being a foundational passage for uh, the institution of marriage um, between a man and a woman, uh, but there's, there's far more to this, especially when we understand that uh, Jesus came to redeem a bride. And of course, uh, the church, uh, Christ's bride, is both male and female. Uh, Jesus didn't just come for a, a bride that is a, a single female uh, figure or person, an individual. He, he came from a church. He, he, he came for a, a corporate bride. Um, and that's, you know, one of the things that's hard for us to, to think about on a day-to-day -day basis in our day-to-day -day struggles, uh, you know, uh, the struggles we have among ourselves, um, but especially, you know, in our own relationships uh, with, with our spouses. Um, it's, it's hard to keep in mind kind of a, a heavenly perspective um, that uh, these relationships will not be that way when we are with Jesus. We're not going to still be married to our spouses. We really have to start looking at the more important of the two marriage relationships. The marriage relationships between uh, a woman and a man, and 
the marriage relationship between Jesus uh, and the church, the bride that he came to redeem. That's obviously uh, the more important one, but, but we get really bogged down into to the, the particular dynamics of our own physical marriages, uh, whereas we should spend the, the, the greater effort and time with the particulars of our uh, marriage relationship to Jesus as his bride. And, and I think when we get finished with this episode, uh, hopefully you will understand uh, much more clearly what I'm talking about and why this is, is so crucially important for us to understand, especially uh, for men to understand. As I've mentioned in earlier episodes, um, I've been part of a, a widow's ministry uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee uh, since it, it, its very beginnings. This ministry is involved in two specific areas. One is helping uh, l- older lower income widows living primarily in inner city and urban neighborhoods uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee with with home repair needs and and lawn care needs. Uh, The other area uh, is uh, the ministry of widows. Uh, We have had a prayer ministry since January 1987. That's when this prayer ministry of widows um, first uh, the first widows gathered together, and it has, widows have been meeting for this ever since, and we have 40 or 50 widows that meet weekly for prayer. Uh, but but this isn't just, you know, your typical prayer gathering, and it's kind of hard to describe what it's like. It's one of those things that you just have to come in and be with these widows and and see it for yourself and experience it for yourself. It's kind of like trying to explain uh, the presence of God. You just can't really explain that. It's something you experience and you can tell people, but until they have experienced uh, it for themselves, uh, it, it just doesn't verbally communicate. I I noticed something after a number of years uh, with widows, and and I probably was aware of it all along, but uh, it finally hit me that, uh, in general, uh, women relate to Jesus as bridegroom, uh, with with them, of course, being a bride. I mean, that's very intuitive, uh, which it is completely uh, counterintuitive for men, you know. I don't see myself as a bride. It, it's not, it's not intuitive, and so it's even more difficult for me to understand my relationship uh, to relate to Jesus in that way uh, as a bride. But um, that doesn't mean that that I shouldn't, or that I should be ignorant of that fact and um, not understand how God looks at at me, how he looks at his church, his bride. But when a woman loses her husband, uh, and of course I work with older widows, so that's who I have seen uh, and been around the most, um, there is this 
more often than not among believing widows, there is this drawing nearer to Jesus. Um, there is this, this greater commitment and devotion to Jesus. There is this realization uh, of Jesus being husband and bridegroom in almost tangible ways. Uh, and uh, widows who, who the less they have, the less, the fewer safety nets they have, and the more dependence they place on Jesus, and the more they have seen Him come through, answering prayers, providing very basic needs for food, clothing, and shelter. Um, the depth of faith that that comes out of that. Uh, I just don't typically see that happening with men when they lose their spouses. Uh, a woman will lose up to 70, 75% of, of all um, relationships that, that uh, she and her husband enjoyed before he passed away. And then people disappear in all the circles that, that they... Uh, had friends, whether they were um, through work, through church, uh, through social organizations, um, even his family members, they disappear. And things don't happen that way typically for a man. A man will, will generally, um, most of those uh, circles of friends and acquaintances uh, will remain intact after his wife has passed away. And there's also another factor, and that, that is, and, and it's a significant factor, and I, and I know I've talked about this before, but I think it's really relevant to bring back up uh, in, in the discussion of this passage that, that there is, for a woman, a loss of identity um, that doesn't happen for a man. A man does not lose his identity when he loses his wife. A, a woman often, uh, I would say, it is a very rare instance that a woman does not lose her identity uh, when she loses uh, her husband. Um, a lot of her identity is tied up in him. And, and it's, you know, I mean, I think that's... Um, part of God's plan. Um, I can't explain it any other way. And uh, when she becomes a widow and has this new name, this new identity for being uh, bereft, being desolate, um, and we as the church do not step in and help come alongside uh, this widow to help her know who she now is, um, as a widow and what her place is among us in the body of Christ and the invaluable in resource that, that she potentially is for prayer, that no one else in the body can really fulfill in quite the same way um, as a widow or a group of widows. doesn't mean that we're not all called to pray. Uh, but but there is a significant difference. Um, prayers coming from widows, especially those widows uh, who have suffered so much uh, through the loss of their husbands and 
um, have come to places of depending uh, so greatly um, in, in such um, depth of trust uh, in Jesus. Um, the, the prayers coming from widows like these are uh, literally uh, not just uh, earth-shaking, but, but kingdom of heaven shaking. But uh, widows and their call to prayer um, is something that is, is so invisible uh, in the church today. It's like, you know, we really don't need them uh, in their prayers because we're already successful. Because it's really about uh, the men in the church uh, and their leadership. And as long as we have good, strong, faithful male leadership in the church, we will be successful. That is what will cause thy kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. And we don't see the equal value and worth of, for women uh, and their contributions at any age, but especially for, uh, for older women, for widows. And the uh, this invaluable prayer resource uh, that that they are that they bring to bear uh, for the sake of the kingdom of God. Hopefully, it's going to make sense why I took the time to present what I have just uh, spoken of in terms of the obvious differences between men and women and their relating uh, to Jesus. Uh, as a bride and him being husband and bridegroom uh, that it's it's a very very different response uh, between men and women and for you know some some very obvious reasons I think uh, but let's move forward with this um, this episode uh, as I said at the very beginning that um, this line, uh, Genesis 2, 24, uh, it, the reason it, it's so easy to find the correlation in uh, the New Testament is because this, this line is uh, exactly repeated in the New Testament. Um, twice in... Um, Two of the Gospels, it's um, basically, it, it's Matthew and Mark, and it's basically giving the same account, uh, but, and it's Jesus actually speaking these words, but the third time uh, we find this, this same passage with these very same words, it's found in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 31 and it is um, being presented in a in a very different way and context uh, than the two previous times um, that it's mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark as uh, Jesus is speaking uh, it begins in Matthew, chapter 19, verse 3, 
uh, some Pharisees came to him, came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the very beginning. And this is essentially almost exactly uh, the Gospel of Mark account. And, you know, a lot, a lot of, of, of time uh, and energy and arguments and discussions and debates have been made uh, even today over Jesus's words here and um, what the actual specific grounds for divorce uh, that God allows uh, should be. And I've come to realize that that's not what is most important. That, that's not the point of what Jesus is saying here. And it is absolutely not the point uh, for what Paul says in Ephesians 5, uh, because that's not even talking about divorce. Uh, Jesus says some pretty profound things here, but, you know, we don't really get it because uh, we don't really, uh, on the one hand, really understand um, our relationship to Jesus as bride. Uh, especially men. We're not so different than what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees about divorce and why Moses allows divorce, um, saying that, you know, it wasn't that way always. Uh, but because uh, men's hearts became hardened, that he kind of caved on this and uh, allowed divorce to take place. This has been talked about before, uh, but, but I think it, it needs to be repeated or reviewed, and I hope I, I don't lose anyone in the process. Hopefully it, it, it will, by the end of this, it, it will be uh, made clear uh, what I'm trying to say and how this ties in as, as proof that Jesus came specifically to redeem a bride. Okay, when God creates uh, Adam and Eve, creates man, makes them, you know, both male and female, and then we have the account of the creation of Eve through Adam, and uh, deception comes in. 
to the garden. But but here in this passage in in Genesis two twenty five, he says, you know, the the two become one flesh. They're one. Uh, in their relationship with God, they are seen as one. Yes, we have individual accountability to God, but in our unions with each other as husband and wife, we are one in God's eyes, and that's our relationship to God. And God, even in this garden setting, uh, it is a marriage relationship with God, if you will. And, and I think the proof of that is that, that when, when Eve is uh, seduced, beguiled by the serpent, and uh, she, she eats the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that God has commanded Adam, you know, you can eat from the tree of any other, uh, eat fruit from any of the other trees, you know, but you just, you can't eat fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, she does. And uh, God said, you know, told him if you do, you'll die. She eats it. She doesn't die. Uh, she convinces Adam uh, that it's okay for, for him to eat it. And then they both realize that they are naked. They have never had any thought of self, physical awareness, outward physical awareness uh, up until that point. You know, they hide, they, they cover themselves up, uh, cover their nakedness up. Uh, God obviously knew what happened when it happened. He comes to them confronts them because of of this act of disobedience. Uh, sin enters into the garden and they have to be removed uh, because it is a an uncorrupted place. It is a place without sin. And in Genesis 3, chapter 3, verse 24, uh, we we find out the the consequences of their sin. Uh, there's some other things uh, like uh, earning your, your living by the sweat of your brow and multiplying uh, pains and childbirth. They are taken out of the garden. They are taken out of that setting. They can no longer stay there uh, because of their sin, which is a, a great, you know, counter argument to the idea that we can be good enough we can do enough good deeds we can be good enough people in order to be reconciled with god and be able to gain entry back into this way that has been blocked if that were so then adam and eve would have been able to undo what they had done there would have been enough uh opportunities to do good works or uh, make offerings unto God uh, in order to um, reverse what had happened. Uh, but it, it, it couldn't be. Um, the only way that we can gain entry back into paradise, the way that has been blocked, is through Jesus. 
This is why. This is how we know that we can't get back there without Jesus. Because Adam and Eve, who were there to begin with, they can't get back in. So it says in this verse, verse 24, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Uh, the the word he drove, as in he drove out, um, uh, it's spelled G-A-R-A-S-H, garage. It's been uh, used 47 times in the Old Testament. Um, two of those times uh, where it appears, uh, this word has been, it's been translated as the word divorced. And in one instance, uh, as a divorced woman. God divorces Adam and Eve. That's what he does. And that's the precedent for divorce. I I said to a pastor uh, a couple of years ago, um, just kind of offhandedly said, well, you know, um, God is the one who instituted divorce. and they looked at me, he, this, this man, this pastor looked at me with wide eyes, like, you know, sort of incredulously, um, what are you talking about? God hates divorce. Everybody knows that. Uh, God didn't institute divorce, but, but he did. This is the, where, this is the precedent for divorce. This is the biblical precedent for divorce. And it is also um, the biblical precedent uh, for the basis of divorce. In Deuteronomy 24.1, it says, uh, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. Um, you know, uh, according to most scholars, um, the idea is this indecency, uh, is really tied to, um, adultery. Um, that's the grounds, uh, for divorce. And we, you know, we, that's repeated, for us uh, in the New Testament, uh, in the passages, the, the passage in in Matthew that that I just read about the grounds for divorce, uh, it being adultery. That's that's where this conversation takes place uh, that that Jesus is having with uh, the Pharisees. Matthew chapter nineteen verse nine. Uh, it's at the end of that section that I previously read, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And this is how we know what Adam and Eve's actual sin in the garden was when they ate the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
it is adultery that Jesus himself, the Son of God, both God and man, said the only grounds permitted for divorce is adultery. And then we have going back uh, in Deuteronomy uh, what I read, but the precedent for it is with Adam and Eve and them eating this fruit. It was, they ate fruit that was only meant for God. And I've covered this before in, in the previous episode. They ate fruit that was only meant for God. They committed an act of self-worship. And with God in our relationship to Him, uh, adultery and idolatry is the same thing to God. That act was an act of idolatry, uh, which in, in their relation, their marriage relationship with God is, is also uh, an act of adultery, an act of self-worship. And God also exercises this, this, this precedent based with Adam and Eve with Israel uh, on numerous occasions uh, throughout their history. But, but one that stands out is, is recorded in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. And this is not talking about uh, sexual immorality or unfaithfulness. This is talking about worship. And their worship being more for themselves and the world, which may look like idols made of gold and wood or anything else that, that takes us away, diverts us in our relationship with God. We do it all the time today. We, we hold on to fruit that God has given to us, made available to us, that is meant for us to give and use for his kingdom, for its advancement, uh, and to the, the aid and care of others. So in a real sense, uh, we, we are, you know, we're unfaithful every day. Uh, every time we neglect to give God thanks, uh, because scripture says, give him thanks in all things. In Christ Jesus' name. Every time um, we hold on to just the abundance that we have, we often have or in a per position to have, uh, only letting you know the the surplus of that go, or the surplus of the surplus of that that go. Uh, but what is what is really going on here? Is is what Jesus saying to uh, the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, is it really, does it really just boil down to 
our relationships with each other, our physical marriage relationships with each other, and what the grounds for divorce should be. I mean, you know, he brings up Moses and why Moses allows uh, a certificate of divorce to be given to wives. And he says, because their hearts were hard, but it wasn't this way from the beginning. Um, there's a much bigger picture going on here that Jesus is trying to communicate uh, to these religious leaders. And they're not catching on to this. Uh, but, but also, I want to introduce something uh, here that uh, I hope won't uh, muddy the waters here or uh, add in some confusion, uh, but that we really need to look at this discussion that Jesus is having with these religious leaders, that um, it is in the context of the, uh, the, the first covenant uh, God made, uh, beginning with Abraham and then um, giving the law to Moses and this new, new covenant uh, being one that, that is, is rooted and grounded in the law itself. Uh, that's, you know, that's the first covenant. Jesus has come uh, to establish uh, a new covenant, a second covenant, a covenant of grace, a, a covenant that um, nullifies that first covenant. It nullifies it. Uh, those who live under that first covenant, we, we can't live under both, you know. It, if we try and practice both, both halves of that, uh, to blend those two together, then, then we've, you know, we come up with this hybrid faith, this hybrid Christian faith, uh, pulling from, from the Old Testament and from the law, which we know the law is is death. You know, if it wasn't for the law, though, uh, we wouldn't know that we need a Savior. But when we have a Savior, when we ha are uh, under this, this new covenant, um, we are no longer under the law, and yet we want... I mean, that's really what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees about uh, Moses, him allowing them to, men to grant a certificate of divorce uh, to their wives because their hearts had become so hard. But when we look at the, th the third instance uh, where the language in Genesis 2.24 comes up in uh, the fifth chapter of Ephesians, it is in an entirely different context and it in that context is completely uh, in the context of the new covenant uh, that is Jesus paid the bride price for by offering up his life and this this covenant uh, it's a it's our marriage contract with him, that when we accept his proposal of marriage, um, this is the contract between us, um, and it, it can't be broken. He has promised never to leave us nor forsake us, which means he will never divorce us. 
we will not be divorced by Jesus, our Savior, our Messiah, our faithful bridegroom. So let's take a look at, at this passage in, uh, in Ephesians, in, in the fifth chapter, and, and look what really is going on, what, what Paul is really trying to say to us, because we have really fallen into exactly what uh, the Pharisees did. This, this argument with Jesus in Matthew 19, when they come to try and, and test him over this issue of uh, what, what grounds or what reasons are legitimate uh, for a man to divorce his wife, that's, that's the same perspective that this, this, these passages uh, having to do with marriage in um, Ephesians 5, that's, that's the perspective that, that these passages are being interpreted in the context of uh, the first covenant, uh, the law. Uh, and uh, it has nothing to do with our physical flesh and blood marriage relationships with each other. It's not talking about that at all. And yet that is the only way uh, that we see and understand this, this body of, of, of Scripture talking about marriage and, and the role of the husband and the role of the wife. And the reason is that men honestly don't realize or understand or are willing to accept that Jesus came to redeem a bride. And that bride is the church, both male and female. And that we are going to be on the bride's side of the altar at the wedding feast at the end of this age. Men are not going to be on Jesus' side of the altar, but our actions would indicate otherwise, especially towards our wives uh, and the way that we conduct ourselves as, as Christian leadership, whether it's in the church or on a national level. Uh, but let's look at it another way. Let's look at it with new covenant eyes, a new covenant of grace eyes, if you will. Let me just take a few minutes to talk about um, uh, this, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Um, I didn't understand about this letter for, for many years in my faith, uh, read parts of it probably read, in fact, I know I read all of it at, at one time, but, but it's kind of been a, a book that I've sort of uh, picked verses out of um, for, you know, different, different arguments um, having to do, say, uh, with the Holy Spirit, you know, the full armor of God, for instance, and the description uh, in Ephesians about that and our our battles not being against flesh and blood, but against princes and principalities. Um, what I really didn't uh, 
hadn't grasped about this book is that, or this letter, is that um, Paul is writing it to a uh, predominantly Gentile church. It's not being written to uh, a church filled with Jewish converts. Um, So, think about this. There's no Bible, there's no New Testament. Um, Gentiles have been left out uh, of the Jewish faith, the, uh, the first covenant uh, with uh, the Jews being God's chosen people. Uh, in fact, you know, they are well aware that, that they have been regarded as being unclean. Um, that Jews couldn't associate uh, with Gentiles, um, were not allowed to even go into their homes uh, because uh, they were unclean. Uh, here's Paul, whose reputation has uh, preceded him, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, by this point, um, uh, he has been known for being a, a Jew of Jews, uh, having authority, uh, prom- a place of per- a prominence in the Jewish faith, a very well studied, uh, probably a man of means, no doubt, uh, and also a reputation for uh, having uh, persecuted uh, the early converts. In fact, he was there. Uh, he had the authority to arrest these these new uh, believers. Uh, he was standing there when Stephen is stoned to death. Uh, He witnesses that personally. And then God reveals himself to Paul on the road to Emmaus. Um, Paul, you know, I I always thought Paul's ministry started immediately, and then I learned in in later years that uh, Paul's ministry started uh, 15 years later after his conversion, uh, somewhere around there that, you know, Paul really had to go and unlearn who he was and what he knew and believed. Uh, Think about that. Paul had a radical conversion. I mean, there's no doubt about that, but, but, you know, there was so much ingrained in him uh, that he left uh, in order to, to really unlearn, uh, all of that so that he could understand more fully uh, the new covenant, the new covenant of grace. And then he, he's the perfect individual to do this because of that conversion uh, and because of what his reputation was. Uh, to uh, but to bring this message, the message of Christ, the message of the new covenant, uh, to to Gentiles who have been left out, who have been unclean. Uh, how do you do that? I cannot even get imagine. I can't get my mind around that. How, what that must have been like uh, to present this to to people who have no tradition and history in the Jewish faith. They they don't know the history of Israel. They don't know all of the things uh, that God led Israel through leading up to the time that Christ came, that he sent his only begotten son. And so 
that's why there's not anything in this book uh, about really about the history of Israel and the law and um, the traditions. Um, it, it's, he presents it in, in very plain, relatable, understandable terms to uh, these early converts, in Gentile converts uh, in Ephesus. And he's breaking down the faith, and he's making he's putting in in, in terms that that are are very relatable. Uh, one of the first things he does is to to help them to understand what has happened, uh, for them to now be able to be accepted by God, chosen by God, to be his children, to be wed to Jesus. Ephesians two. Chapter 2, 11 through 19. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, uh, which was done by human hands. Uh, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Do you understand? Do you really understand what that line says? He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Whereas there used to be two separate flesh, Jew and Gentile, Paul is saying there is God now only sees one flesh. There's only regard for one flesh. Uh, and it, it, it is not gender-based. In other words, uh, there's neither for just men or for just women when it comes to salvation uh, or for Jews only uh, or Gentiles only. Uh, it, it says Jews and Greek. They're neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female. All are welcome. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Uh, that's marriage. Plain and simply, that is widow-bride marriage imagery. Thus making peace. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. I really hope this uh, is making sense. And at the same time, I know that it is... Uh, uh, somewhat controversial 
because um, what this is saying is that what Paul is saying to to these to the Ephesians is that um, God's chosen people are now those that he he chooses uh, that he has chosen to be the church to be the bride for his son Jesus this can be confirmed uh, by what Paul says in in Romans Romans 2 28 and verse 29 he says a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly nor is circumcision merely outward and physical no a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit not by the written code not by the law such a person's praise is not from other people but from God in chapter 1 of Ephesians uh, Paul tells us uh, about being a part of God's family grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given to us in the ones he loves God chooses us in fact it says he chose us before uh, the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight again he's talking to Gentiles he's, he's telling them that uh, God chose us. God brings us to Jesus. Jesus even says that, that he does, even he doesn't know who is going to be saved, who is going to be with him for all eternity. Only his father knows that. And, uh, you know, that's where we get this, this idea of sonship. He, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. You know, sonship has to do with our relationship with God the Father. And it's also sons and daughters. It's talking about both. Uh, but in Jesus, you know, what we don't talk about uh, is uh, brideship because that is the relationship that we have to Jesus as his bride. And then Paul tells us in, in chapter 2, uh, verse 8, that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this has nothing to do with us and who we are. It is the gift of God, uh, the covenant of grace. That's what we have been saved under uh, by placing our faith and trust in Jesus, by accepting his proposal of marriage by believing that he has paid the bride price for us. So Paul goes, at, at the beginning of Ephesians, God, Paul goes through uh, 
this this laying out the faith uh, in 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 terms that these folks in this church in Ephesus uh, can understand and relate to. And then he uses he uses um, first he starts off using the family unit, husbands and wives and children, uh, to help us to to relate on something that's that's very tangible and real in our own lives uh, in order to help us to understand what our relationship is like to God from God's perspective and so he we have this this most of chapter five talking about uh husbands and wives uh, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and, and and wives submit to your husbands and then in chapter 6 um, in giving them a, a picture uh, for them to be able to understand and us to be able to understand our relationship to God the Father uh, Ephesians 6 1 Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. You know, yes, this is an instruction. Uh, I mean, if I was a child and I read this, uh, or my parents showed this to me and said, look, you need to obey me because... Ephesians 6.1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But the bigger picture, uh, we get so bogged down in the little picture here. The bigger picture here is that God wants us to know that as adults, we are like children to him. We are his children. That's how God sees us. He's father. We call him father. We are his children. We need to obey God. In the same way we, we want our kids to obey us, uh, which, you know, if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, he's using that relationship between children and parents for us to understand. And for these Ephesians who don't know anything about the Christian faith, I mean, that's Ephesians is Christianity 101, and it's something that that all believers should go back and read again and again throughout uh, their lives to come back to that very fundamental place uh, of for understanding uh, our the simplicity of our faith. And then it goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit, and it uses terms that that were very familiar back then, um, soldiers in, the, in their armament, you know, putting on the breastplate of righteousness and shotting your feet with the gospel of peace and covering our heads with the helmet of salvation. You know, those, those give us images uh, in our minds to help us understand what the Holy Spirit's presence is is in our lives. Now remember in the first covenant, the first covenant is all about outward appearance and outward cleansing. You know, uh, the new covenant is one where we are cleansed from the inside out. The, the Holy Spirit fills us completely. 
entirely. We are clean from the inside out. We already have that armor on us. We don't have to put it on literally. Uh, we just have to remember it re and understand that Paul is giving us a picture here so we will understand that, that God's presence is in us, that he has not abandoned us, that we are connected with him and that we can call on him through his spirit in us who is there to watch over us and, and protect us uh, and that we can can call on uh, without measure. You know, there's no limit to how often uh, we can call on uh, the Holy Spirit uh, or how desperate. Uh, it. The Spirit of God never runs out. There is no limit to the Holy Spirit. Scripture even tells us that we don't even know how to pray, um, really, with um, pure motives. You know, we, we are compromised. Um, our motives are so often so terribly impure, uh, but the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with moanings and groaning. Paul even addresses our citizenship in heaven. Uh, that we are already seated in a heavenly realm with Jesus. Even now, while we're on this earth, once we accept his proposal of marriage, and he does this uh, in the context of telling us about the Holy Spirit and uh, the full armor of God, says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We're not supposed to be thinking about our earthly citizenships. That is not our priority. Our priority is always our citizenship in heaven, whereas we as Gentiles were excluded from citizenship in Israel, we have now been included. The dividing wall has been removed. There are no longer two separate flesh, only one with God and the opportunity to be Christ's betrothed. Now, just one quick note I want to make here before we, we look at some specific passages in Ephesians 5 is Ephesians uh, is to Gentiles what the book of Hebrews is to uh, those early Jewish converts and believers. If you read through the book of Ephesians and understand it as Christianity 101 for uh, Gentile uh, converts, uh, then the book of Hebrews really is Christianity 101 for Jewish believers why there's so much in there. A lot of people find Hebrews very confusing. Uh, a lot of the imagery and symbolism and, and uh, figurative meaning of, of, of uh, some of its content. Uh, if, if you did not grow up in the Jewish faith, if you don't know the, the history and, and traditions and the culture of the Jewish faith, especially back at that time, uh, you wouldn't understand any of that. It, it would be so complex uh, 
uh, for you. But, but for a Jewish believer, it is put in the context of their faith so they can understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to send uh, the Messiah who will deliver, redeem, and ultimately restore. Um, I, I hope that that makes sense, and I haven't gone off on too great a tangent, but I wanted to, to you know, put, put preface uh, talking about uh, Ephesians and the, the third instance in the New Testament uh, where this passage in Genesis uh, 2.25 uh, is repeated. And it's found in, in chapter 5, verse 31. Uh, for this reason, exactly like it's written in, in Genesis 2, 24, uh, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But then Paul kind of kind of throws... Uh, you know what? What could be seen as uh, confusion here, if if you don't really understand the bigger picture of what 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 Paul is trying to help these these early uh, Gentile f- converts understand about their relationship with Jesus, he says everything that he's already talked about leading up to this, and we're going to read everything leading up to this, but. But you really need to read this first and then go back and read it. Verse 32. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. Verse 33. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. And now... Honest and truly, almost every time I have heard anything preached or taught about um, these passages having to do uh, with marriage, it always seems that, that the main verse that's focused on is verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, I've heard, you know, occasionally it kind of mixed in there, you know, that yes, husbands are supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Church, but wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do unto the Lord because, you know, it's, I mean, this. I know this sounds really harsh, but I, I think it's true, you know, the source of all of our problems are our wives, our women. And I just don't think that preaching on this verse has helped a single marriage or women in general uh, to date. In fact, if anything, I think that it has had 
the the polar opposite effect. And you know why shouldn't we be surprised? Uh, because that it has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about here. Paul is only using using the the physical husband and wife relationship to point us to him, to Jesus. You know, he, he's using that, that relationship to help us to understand what our relationship is to him. Now, if you read the line right before verse 22, uh, verse 21, the, the line right before it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It doesn't say uh, only other people who aren't your wife. Uh, everybody else you can submit to and they can submit to you. But, but in the marriage, only the wife is the one who, who has to submit that's ludicrous. It does not make any sense. It just does not. It is such false reasoning. So Paul goes through, you know, gives us this picture uh, of both sides of, of, of the marriage, husbands and wives, because he's trying to help us to, to realize the bigger picture here is for our marriage relationship to him as the church the church that he came to redeem, uh, to redeem as his bride. So it goes through, you know, talking about what wives ought to do, and, uh, and then uh, what husbands should do. Uh, verse 28, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. We are members of Christ's body. And the two are one in a marriage, a physical marriage. We, we as one, are in a marriage relationship with Jesus. But this is... If you, if you read what comes before verse 32, this is a profound mystery. I am talking about Christ in the church. You know, he starts out, everybody submit one to each, to each other. And then he ends after saying this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. Verse 33, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect the husband. You must equally submit to each other. You know, that's when, when because this is what the new covenant of grace is. What was discussed by Jesus with the Pharisees and talking about the issue of divorce and what the grounds for it are that actually go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve's own sin. That's the precedent for divorce. But now uh, we're not 
under the law anymore. Um, we, we are under a covenant of grace, and we are betrothed to Jesus. We are already married to Jesus. That is the most important marriage there is. It is our first marriage priority. And if it is, then that's what we need to pursue first as our uh, priority. You know, uh, think about this in terms of, of marriage and how we approach marriage. And uh, of course, if there's going to be a marriage, then there has to be pre-marriage counseling. And then once we are married and we uh, run into to, to rough times, uh, then we have uh, marriage counseling to try and uh, fix our marriages. Um, but as a man, what, what I have realized, um, you know, what I have learned by hanging out with widows for 30 years, uh, that's just changed my entire view of my relationship to Jesus and, and, and even the way I approach scripture is that, uh, at least for me, I, I can't speak for women. Uh, but, but for me as a man, uh, it makes far more sense now that, um, I should be counseled, uh, and, and helped to understand the way that Jesus sees me as bride and to, to, approach my relationship with Jesus in that way so that that my own wife, my own bride can then become a model for me for uh, what a bride looks like, who, who a bride is uh, in our relationship to Jesus. And then I can be more of, of uh, hus husband, uh, bridegroom, uh, for her in her life and to be able to show the same kind of unconditional love and acceptance for her that Jesus does. Why? Uh, because I will have far more understanding for her and her struggles and, and needs uh, as a bride. But if I only see her as someone that... Uh, has to submit to me, and then she feels like um, that's her only option. Uh, you know, that's not love. That's not acceptance. Um, you know, Jesus accepts us uh, and loves us unconditionally. That means he places no conditions on his love for us, and yet you know, if we look at these passages, these passages in a first uh, covenant under the law way as instructions, uh, then just by virtue of, of of looking at them that way, then then those become conditions and for us uh, to be able to have a, a a successful, peaceful, and 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 thriving marriage that glorifies God. And that's just the, one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard because we're, we're all selfish. We're all selfish. And selfishness is probably one of the biggest 
motives uh, for getting divorced, especially for men, you know, who say, you know, don't I deserve to be happy? It's all about my happiness. Uh, and, but, you know, we are meant as husbands and wives to, to, to equally teach each other about unconditional love and acceptance uh, so that we can more fully realize and understand Jesus's unconditional love and acceptance uh, for us, which is just, just mind-boggling. You know, these, these passages in Ephesians in terms of husbands and wives' relationships should never even come up. You can read them and study them if you want to, but when they are just, you know, preached to us and, and taught to us, especially with women catching the brunt of them, how can we expect uh, our, our relationships uh, to, to be healthy? Uh, that, that that's on any level what Paul meant uh, when he uh, wrote these instructions, when he's just trying to get these folks to, to understand that you're in. God is now accepting Gentiles. Line up here. And this is what your relationship with him is, is going to, uh, to be like. Uh, no, submission is not something that can be legislated. Uh, it can't be faked. It is a willingness within ourselves to first submit ourselves to God the Father and Jesus as husband and Savior. That's where the willingness to submit has to come in, first and foremost. And then we should submit to each other. But that's equally, not one more than the other. Uh, we, we equally submit to each other uh, because that that's what and it's done in 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 genuine love and acceptance and it goes against against our our nature just who we are as sinners uh, we want to be in control we want to be in charge uh, we want to have both the first and final say so about everything that goes on uh, and we, we don't have any of that. Jesus does. Jesus has that in our lives. So, you know, if you look at, at Ephesians and what it's saying here about the husband and wife relationship, that this mystery is great because it's, we still don't get it. We still don't understand that it's trying to get us to understand our relationship with Jesus uh, as husband and with us being uh, his bride uh, and that every place we, we see in scripture that's talking about husband and wife relationships and marriage that that is only meant to point us to Jesus and our relationship to him it's not for us to get look at that uh, in a microscope and get petty about it and enforcing it and, and legislating that. That's what the discussion Jesus was having with the Pharisees about divorce. That's, that's what he, why he was, the point that he was trying to make with them. You, you have made it petty. 
because you're sinners and you're selfish and, and because men are in control, we're in control and in charge and we're still trying to be, um, you know, we want it our way. And, uh, and Moses finally agreed and let them have their way. You know, we're, we're doing the exact same thing today. Um, we look at a passage uh, or passages like this in Ephesians, uh, and when we don't understand that Paul is trying to get us to understand uh, what our relationship to Jesus is as bride, uh, as the church, both male and female, um, these passages then become the stumbling blocks for husbands and wives. And uh, holding them up, as the case may be, or apply to say, you know, the Bible says you need to submit to me, or uh, you're supposed to love me as Christ loved the church. You know, this, this is really going both ways. Uh, yes, it says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, but at the same time, uh, husbands, um, we're also a bride in our relationship to Jesus. And so those, those, those wife passages, they apply to us in our relationship to Jesus. How can we ever really fully embrace and accept our wives uh, with equal standing in the ways that God has accepted us into his family on equal standing, um, that we will not be these husbands and wives when we are with him for eternity. We have to be able to see each other in that way now, and that we are now citizens of heaven. That is our priority. We have to see uh, the world around us with uh, an eternal perspective that our primary citizenship now is in heaven because we're already seated in a heavenly realm with Jesus. And in this life now, we are, like Paul, ambassadors in chains. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, the first covenant, uh, the one that was under the law, uh, when Israel again and again became unfaithful, um, God accuses her of adultery, uh, which is the same thing as idolatry. And he puts her away. He gives her a certificate of divorce. Because we are now under a covenant of grace, God's not going to do that to us. He's not going to do that to Christ's bride. But we can be guilty of divorcing ourselves from God. That's the consequence. I'm, I'm not implying that, that we can lose our salvation uh, that, that God is going to uh, be done with us in the ways that, that he, he was in the Old Testament. No, because he has betrothed us uh, 
to his son Jesus. He has adopted us into his, his family. We are co-heirs with Jesus. But there are consequences for our sin. We can bring judgment down upon ourselves because of our hardened hearts. When we get so focused on the law and the fights I have have heard in churches uh, for years since I became a Christian about what, what the acceptable grounds are for divorce, God doesn't divorce us. Jesus does not divorce us. Every day we commit some form of adultery in our relationship with Him. Whether it's not giving thanks to Him in all things, uh, because He is, is worthy, God is worthy, whether we, uh, God puts a need of someone else in our path and we walk around it because we're too busy, because it's going to interrupt our schedule or our high calling, uh, what we perceive to be a high calling, every single day uh, we, we are unfaithful to him in more than one way or one time. And yet he loves us and he accepts us and he says, you know, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. I think the same thing is true about our own relationships with each other in a marriage. Uh, but God doesn't abandon us. He said he will never leave us nor forsake us. So why can't we offer that, that same level of grace, that, that same level of unconditional love and acceptance for each other in our marriages and with each other outside of our marriages? And why can't we function in this way uh, in our churches, in, in the, the bodies that, that we are a part of? Why can't we see ourselves as a bride? Why can't our male leadership understand uh, this? Why is it that uh, if we understand the church to be uh, a bride, Christ's bride, uh, the church both male and female as Christ's bride, then a church's leadership body is, is really, in effect, should symbolically, figuratively um, mirror our relationship with Christ. They should consider uh, the congregation uh, to, to be leadership and a congregation to be in a marriage relationship, if you will that um, just as Jesus came to serve and not be served, that's a model for all of us uh, equally to do. But, but in the case of, of leadership, uh, how much more important is it for that leadership body uh, to serve a congregation and not expect the congregation to serve them? And the same in a marriage. I mean, a, a husband is there to to serve his wife and to serve his children and not expect to be served. And that's why it's so critically important for us to model this uh, 
for our children and for the sake of the kingdom of God with future generations. Because children are the future of the church going forward. And so this has to be modeled uh, for our children on every level. Uh, the leadership in our churches has to model uh, what it looks like to be a bride, so to speak, in our relationship with Jesus. Uh, and his example was to lay down his life for his bride, for us. And uh, when he was here, he modeled what it looked like to serve and not be served. Uh, and, and that should be a model uh, for husbands and wives with each other. Um, willingness to lay down our lives for one another, uh, to serve and not be served. Children growing up need to be able to see this at, at every point in their uh, in their lives. Uh, you know, if they go to Christian school, you know, uh, that needs to be modeled for them by their teachers and the administration and, and the coaches and any Christian leaders that they come into contact with is uh, th this model of submission to Jesus as bride, which means that, that we serve uh, and don't expect to be served. Amen. In our next episode, we will be concluding this series, The Church as Last Eve, proving that Jesus came to redeem a bride with Genesis 2.25. Adam and his wife were naked, and they felt no shame. You've been listening to Pleading the Case with Andy Mendonca, posing the question, is the church today the pure and undefiled bride that God desires us to be? Or, like Eve, have we been deceived and our minds led astray from our pure and sincere devotion to Christ? And I sincerely welcome your comments. Feel free to leave them on our website, or if you want to send me an email directly, you can send it to andy at widows.org. Until next time. <laughs>